0: Open up in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Well, it is nearing Christmas, and often when we consider Christmas, we look at the details of Christ's birth and then stop there. We often don't consider that which comes ought to come as a result of the reality of the incarnation. So that's a little bit of what we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to look at how the humility of Christ in the incarnation encourages us to be humble. The self is perhaps the greatest adversary of the Christian life. It's insidious, the pride of, or the sin of pride and selfishness. It's really really difficult to see in yourself the sin of pride and it's so poisonous to us. Our entire world obsesses over self. I think we've all heard people say things about what I deserve or what's best for me or needing to be true to myself or needing my voice or my opinion to be heard. And the world constantly barrages us with messages that say things like, you need to prioritize you in your life, or you need to follow your dreams or your heart, or you need to do what makes you happy. These are all arrows that the enemy has loosed upon our world, and they've hit their marks. We are a culture utterly obsessed with self, and it is destructive and ruinous, and sinful. I think if we were to peer honestly into our own souls, we would find that idolatry of self stands at the root of our sins. We intuitively know this, I think, about self-obsession. I've heard a lot of people give me parenting advice along these lines. If you train your kids to think only about self, then they're going to be absolute brats. And that's true, because pride is root of many other sins. And yet I think with this issue, it is far too easy for us to point out the speck in another's eye and not notice the plank in our own. Our eyes have been blinded by the enemy who wants us to be blind to the idolatry of self. Consider the words of Jesus when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And follow him not only by obeying his commandments, but also by following his example of humility. And what greater display, what greater display of humility can be found in all the universe than in the miracle of the incarnation, which we call to mind at Christmas time. In our text in Philippians this morning, the Apostle Paul encourages unity in the church. And he encourages unity by instructing Christians to forsake self. For the greatest practical remedy for sin in the church is dramatic humility. To illustrate what kind of humility he speaks of, Paul sets forth the Lord Jesus as the chief example for Christians of this. Our text this morning is divided into two main sections. First, unity through humility. And second, the humility of Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at both of those things in turn. And then we will talk about the practical considerations of this text. May the Spirit of God use this text and the example of Christ to grant us humble spirits. And may we be given a true desire to make little of ourselves and much of others, that the joy of the church may be unified. Let's read our text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, then pray and then jump in. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... This morning, Lord, we come to you. We ask for your aid. Cause us to see with clarity the pride that lies in our hearts. That sin which is so difficult to get rid of. Help us to see clearly the commands that you have given by the apostle to us urging us to humility. Lord, give us eyes to see the humility of your Son in the Incarnation. Cause us, Lord, to look to Him as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the chief example for us for how we ought to live with respect to one another. Convict us of our sin. Remind us of forgiveness, and grant us joy in the church, Lord. We love you. We seek to honor you. Please aid us this morning and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the first verse in our section, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul gives this command, complete my joy. Complete my joy. How? How are we to complete his joy? Well, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity. Unity of love for one another. Agreement. Unity of thinking Paul is saying, complete my joy by not being disunified. It's easier said than done, right? (laughs) How can two people be of the same mind and same love and in full accord ever, let alone an entire local church? That's a tall order. But the Spirit of God knows well the frailties of human nature. He knows what we need. And so he provides us with the means to this kind of unity in verse 3. Next verse. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Here's an oft-quoted verse, one worth memorizing and meditating on. There are two statements here related to one another. Nothing about us is to be from selfish ambition or conceit. Second, We must consider others more than we consider ourselves. So, for unity to be a reality, no action in the life of the Christian should stem from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, selfish ambition carries the sense of climbing over someone else to do what you want to do, to promote self, to promote your own position, your own interests, your own reputation or your own desires, even. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's ambition. It's, it's drive, motivation, determination that centers on self. And by this, he tells us, there will be no unity of mind and heart if Christians ambitiously pursue self. You show me a man who has a high opinion of himself, or who looks with scorn upon others, or who seeks praise for his deeds, Or a man who is never content with his status, position, or possessions. He's always wanting more. And I can assure you that sin and disunity will certainly follow. Genuine humility is not only external. It is, by definition, internal. It's a matter of the heart. Many men can wear a mask of humility. That doesn't make them humble. Thomas Watson once said, a humble soul is emptied of all swelling thoughts of himself. For many, the most insidious danger is not overt selfishness. It's selfishness under the guise of selflessness. It's giving the appearance of lowliness for the sake of self-gain. Here is a common example in churches that I myself am certainly guilty of at times. It is the seemingly humble person who relentlessly pursues their own plans and intentions because they think their plans are best. They'll yield the most practical results, so we ought to go with what I think, not with what you think. It's a show of humility. It's a sham. It's not, it's not legitimate. It's not genuine. It seeks the advancement and the glory of self. We're not pragmatists. The best thing for the church is not necessarily the thing with the most visible results. Consider the mounting number of stories from large corporation churches that found rot in their foundations because one dude thought he was what's best for the church. That his ideas, or his personality, or his legitimate talents talents were to drive the ministry and the mission of the local church? Would he openly declare, everything's about me? No, no, of course not. But obviously, his, his vision, his plan, it's just better than everyone else's. Other people aren't gifted like he is. So it's in the church's best interest for his plan to be the plan. And if someone isn't on board with his brand, they should just hop off the bus and, and find another church. Because the CEO-styled celebrity wannabe pastor is what's best for the church. I've heard that story a lot in recent days. That's not true. Jesus is what's best for the church. Just because a man is good at what he does does not mean that he should act out of selfish ambition with a thin guise of humility. Skill and talent is not an excuse for self-promotion and the elevation of self over others. And maybe those churches that have fallen to shreds because of this would fare better if that pastor was instead the guy who's holding the door open for that forgotten man in the back who has in holiness and maturity devoted himself to humble prayer and study for the last 30 years. We don't need man's personality and ideas in American Christianity. That's not what we're lacking We need Jesus. We need scripture. We need holiness. Give me a plurality of pastors who are committed to prayer and holiness and the week-in, week-out, faithful preaching of God's word and the invisible, unseen shepherding of God's people. Give me them over the most talented, gifted visionary who has deceived himself into thinking he's not being selfish. He's doing what's best for the church. We don't need him. And church, may we not sit here in judgment, shaking our heads at such a thing when we practice the exact same things. Keep watch over your own heart and intentions. Do nothing to promote self for your own vain glory. No one knows why you shouldn't have the spotlight more than you. Look at your heart Oh, what inadequacy and wickedness lie there. Shall the church flourish if I, tainted with such sin and vile intentions, am elevated? What better remedy for the prideful heart than to perceive and behold with clear vision our own sin? It humbles us to see our frailties. He says in the second part of this verse, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Place a higher value on others' reputation, their advancement, their desires. If you look next to you, literally, like you look next to you, those people, your spouses, your, your kids, your parents, your friends, your co laborers in Christ, serve them. Serve them. Serve their needs at your expense, at your loss. Don't pursue the things that elevate you. Strive, fight to elevate others. Act in humility, bringing yourself low for the sake of others. Paul doubles down on this idea in verse 4, the next verse. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Consider, brothers and sisters, a whole church that doesn't emphasize self or promote self, but prioritizes others and enacts their plans, fulfills their desires, does their ideas. Would not disunifying sins decrease? Would not the church be found with a common love for one another, with single-mindedness? Oh, that we would be a church filled with saints who seek the interests of others that we would be humble, elevating others instead of ourselves, that we would delight in the success of our brothers and sisters. May we learn to value what heaven values, not the first and greatest visibly, but the last and the lowly. Paul saw this matter as significant enough to illustrate for us. He said, this is good, this is true. I want to show an example I want to show an example of humility that people may see what I'm talking about. And that leads us to the second section of this morning's text, the humility of Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have the same mind that Christ Jesus had. To what degree ought we elevate others? Well, you want an example? Look to Christ. He's the example for us. He shows us what Paul means. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is wild. This is just a crazy verse. The more I studied this, I was like, "This this is an intense verse. This is what Paul writes. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped The first part of this verse says literally being in the form of God or existing in the form of God. Christians generally have an understanding of this. The Lord Jesus was co-equal, co-eternal with the Father prior before his incarnation. In other words, Jesus did not become divine. He did not inherit Existing in the form of God, as Mormons claim. In all eternity past, he existed in the form of God. As far back as we go, the word form can refer to an external appearance. But in this case, I don't think that's what Paul is meaning. That doesn't seem the preferable sense. There's a related form of this word in Romans chapter 12, and another well known verse. Paul says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed is a related form of this, this word. That transformation is not external, it's something that happens in our minds, in our souls, in our inner self. So when Philippians here says he existed in the form of God, he's saying, that the Son's eternal existence was the same form, the same essential nature of God, including all of His attributes and His glories. That is remarkable. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Son's very nature in eternity past was that of glorious deity. All the perfection and purity and gloriousness of the Father was found in the Son. Immovable, incomprehensible, eternal, unchanging, infinite in all blessedness. The Lord Jesus, prior to his incarnation, lacked no good thing. Indeed, he was himself the very root of beauty and goodness, enthroned in eternal glory, matchlessly exalted, the object of angelic worship. The second half of this verse is a tricky phrase to translate. Some translations, including the ESV, say something like this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Other translations say something like, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, both translations are theologically true and grammatically feasible, but I think the latter translation, this translation that's up on the screen right now, is more likely what Paul intended, though I could be wrong, but that's my conclusion. If you want to know why I think that, I'd be happy to kind of explain the details of of the Uh, the language there, if you want to ask me after service. But nonetheless, this is what I think Paul was meaning when he said this verse. Though he was in the form, and the though is also um, interpretive in this case, being in the form of God or existing in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That statement is profound. Paul states, I believe, the son didn't think it robbery to be equal equal with God. In other words, it wasn't wrong in the eyes of the Son to be considered equal with God, equal in status, in glory, and authority. He didn't count that robbing God. He didn't count that to be wronging God to say he was equal with him. What a statement. What a statement about the deity of Christ. He existed in the very form of God, And he didn't consider it improper or unjust gain to see himself equal with God. Profound. And yet, the great miracle is not that he has in eternity past been divine, but it's the miracle remembered at Christmas. It's the miracle that comes in verse 7. That's the miracle. Verse 7 says this, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in In the likeness of men. The higher and more exalted that we see Christ in verse 6, the more dramatic this humility on display in verse 7. The apostle begins by lifting us up, up, up high into the clouds of eternal being and glory that we may follow the sun lower, lower, and lower still to see humility on display. The gravity of the son's humility is predicated on his eternal and glorious nature. I tremble to deal with this verse. (laughs) Verse 7. Much has been said about it, and much error has surrounded it. The errors that have come from verse 7 are worth briefly confronting, even though the overall point of our text is on Christ's humility. They have become common and worth confronting. Much has been said about Jesus emptying himself. What exactly does that mean? Let me be clear. It does not mean that Jesus lost any of his divine attributes. God Almighty is unchangeable. He is not able to be changed meaning His divine attributes cannot be lost. And it also does not mean that the Son stopped operating His divine attributes. He neither stopped having His divine attributes, nor did He stop operating His divine attributes. The infinite Son of God at the Incarnation neither ceases to be deity or to operate as deity. He cannot stop being what he unchangeably is, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. God cannot just turn off parts of his nature like a light switch. He cannot at any given moment decide to stop being omnipotent, for that would constitute a change in the being of God. He can't do that. Here's a great example that was really helpful for me. Hebrews 1 tells us that the eternal Son of God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Did Christ stop upholding the universe at the incarnation? No. He maintained his upholding of the universe at the incarnation. I want to be clear on this point also. There is a ditch on this side of the road. We're saying that, that the divine nature lost something. And there is also a ditch on this side of the road, and one that is very common, one that I have often repeated without thinking about it until recently, um, and that is this statement, that instead the Son added to His divine nature. He did not add to His divine nature. How can you add to infinite, unchanging perfection? You cannot add to infinite blessedness. So what does this mean then? The Son of God, who lacked nothing, who eternally existed as infinite, unchanging deity, did not add something, for he lacked nothing, but he took on, or assumed, finiteness, or a lack. He he assumed a nature that had a lack of divine attributes. He assumed a human nature. He didn't become weak. He took on weakness. He didn't surrender his attributes to take on a finite existence. The person of Christ concurrently acts in accordance with his two natures. So get this, as his mother rocked him to sleep as a toddler, he omnipotently upheld the universe by the word of his power. All through the mystery of what we call the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, which just means the union of two natures in one person. A divine nature and a human nature in one person. In the one person of the Son, there were two natures both inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. One whose, two what's. What did divine nature gain? Nothing. What did human nature gain? Absolutely everything. So, what's the emptying here? The emptying is the concealing of his visible, immediate, and expressed glory from our eyes. When men saw Christ, he did not have a halo. He did not glow. When men saw him, he had dirt under his fingernails. He had bruises on his body. He stood there, glory incarnate, veiled in flesh. Not that the glory was lessened. Don't think the glory was lessened. It was concealed from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot imagine what it is to be in the very form of God. Our highest thoughts cannot grasp the lowest threads of this truth. Our loftiest musings cannot exhaust the glory of this mystery. We cannot grasp Christ in His indescribable might, His incomprehensible nature. And if we cannot grasp the height that He came from, how are we to grasp the depths to which He descended You must understand this. It was no great angel that took on flesh. It was not a cherub. It was the I Am, the Lord of all creation, the sovereign, immutable God of all. He humbled himself. He took on human flesh. And the great height of his glory is beyond us, and so the great depth of his humility is likewise beyond us. Spurgeon said this, Here in the immeasurable distance between the heaven of his glory and the shame of his death is room for your gratitude. You may rise on wings of joy, you may dive the depths of self-denial, but in neither case will you reach the experience of your divine Lord, who thus for you came from heaven to earth, that he may take you up from earth to heaven. What? What glories and and mysteries. These are the things worthy of song and praise and thanksgiving. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Our God with us. That the Lord Jesus could be touched. that, That he cried. That he bled. God with us. With us, do you know us? (laughs) With us in the flesh? What marvelous mysteries have we beheld in this text? And, And note this. The Christmas narrative does not record that the Lord Jesus was born into a great palace of gold, clothed in the finest purple swaddle available. He's higher than the highest heaven. He fills heaven and earth how could we not give him the greatest palace man could ever make? And yet still it would be unfitting for his majesty. Should not instead Our Christmas stories tell of the totality of mankind coming to Bethlehem, surrounding his crib in tribute and praise. Surely that would be more suitable, though still not suitable enough, I say. As the hymn puts it, were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. The Lord Jesus was found in no palace. He had no expensive purple swaddle. He was found in a manger, surrounded by lowly animals and shepherds. This this peasant boy, he's God in the highest. What humility, what lowliness. He lowered himself and lowered himself and lowered himself some more, and then was born in a barn. And lower still he went. Get this, he honored his earthly parents. He obeyed them. He is the lawgiver himself. And he was obedient to the parents whom he created. He worked as a boy with his hands. He learned to trade. And when the Lord Jesus began his public ministry, did he seek out the greatest minds to follow him, to instruct? Did he call the most learned men of his day to be his disciples? He called fishermen, fishermen, regular dudes. Did he minister to the greatest kings of men? No, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, they gathered to him. What? To the I am? Really? And more so, the one who puts breath in the lungs of man heard blasphemous claims against him that his miracles were the works of Satan. He wept, he bled, he was betrayed. Not only did the infinite sovereign Lord assume assume a human nature, He lived a humble life. Lower, lower, lower. The Son of God considered it not low enough to merely die. He laid his life down and died a shameful death. Look at the next verse, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, what the Lord Jesus would not endure for those who have been granted to him by the Father. Shall we not see the love of God for his people in this? Not content was the Son of Man to conceal this glory. Not content was he to humble himself to a lowly stature among men. Not content was he to humble himself in submission to his parents. Not content was he to humble himself and die at all, the very notion of which was utterly foreign to the author of life. He endured the humiliation of a criminal's death, of a cursed death on a tree, to unjustly suffer the wrath of his father. It was a violent death of lingering agony. He, was not, he, he didn't do it heralded as the hero of God's people but as a criminal and an enemy. And did he not say of his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. He willingly gave his life as an expression of humility. And then furthermore, when he's hanging on the cross, did he smite those who came against him? Did he rouse all the host of heaven to vengeance for killing the author of life? Did he utter eternal curses against his murderers? No. What did the Lord Jesus say? Forgive them. They know not what they do. What reason did the son have for this? Nothing but the love of his people and the glory of his father. Augustine said this fantastic paragraph. He wrote, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. But it doesn't end there. Look at verses 9 through 11. This is how Paul ends this section. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his inconceivable humility, this is what the Father does. Therefore, because of all this, therefore, this is what the Father does. He highly exalts him with supreme honor. Now, The eternal Son of God has all glory. He lacks nothing. But what now sits on the throne? Who has been exalted over all? One in the likeness of human flesh. The God-man, the Lord Jesus. Deity gained nothing. But humanity, low as we are, humanity gained glory and exaltation. What a wondrous thing. How can the dust of the earth be exalted to such a position? Because of the humility of the Son of God in the incarnation. To the degree that the Son humbled himself and brought himself low, we should lift him up in eager exaltation, praise, and worship. What does this say? Every knee should bow. In heaven on earth and below the the earth. Yes, even those in hell cannot escape the majesty of the Lord Jesus. They may gnash their teeth at him, but they cannot escape his majesty and his lordship and his sovereignty. He is the king of kings on the throne, and they know that. There is no ignorance for those in hell. They know the king of kings. They will bow before him, kind of like at his betrayal, Guards fell before him. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What can I add to that? <laughs> I can't say any more than it already says. What a fantastic statement. The glory of God the Father is the end for which Christ did these things. He sought the glory of his Father. His humility was an act of love, an act of glorification. Paul spoke of these glorious mysteries so that we may behold the example of the Lord Jesus. The point here, which which is crazy because when we look at Philippians 2, our emphasis is on this section because it's remarkable. But the point Paul is making is to prop Christ up as an example that we may see how he being higher than you and I ever will be, sought the interests of others and counted them more significant than himself. He did not exalt himself. He had every right to. He had every right to. He did not exalt himself. And we, brothers and sisters, we are to have this same mind. And if we are found with this same mind, certainly there will be unity in the church. I want to now turn to some points of application that are given from Christ's example. Four points. First, we must learn self-denial as Christians. We must learn self-denial as Christians. We must not exalt ourselves, church. Have you ever experienced a lack of recognition for your deeds? Have you ever found your ideas disregarded Your desires unmet? Have you been looked down upon? Have you been forgotten? Are you the last of those around you? Then you shall surely find a companion in Christ. He who was far higher than you became far lower than you, and he was content enough. When little is thought of you, and man does not know you, and you sacrifice, and you lose, and you're put low, rejoice. Rejoice how much more like Jesus you are. Again, I quote the words of the Lord. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow him right into a state of humility where others matter more, where you serve them, where you deny self. And Part of this task of self-denial is resisting that temptation to feign martyrdom in this, to whine and complain that you don't get your way. No, no, not among Christians. We don't play that game. You don't get your way? Good. You're better off for it. Don't despise those things the Lord uses to humble you. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the greatest humiliation, the cross. What a joy to lose that others may gain. What a blessed privilege. Only a fool whines to gain selfish pity from others. Jesus said that person's already received their reward. Not only should we deny ourselves in those matters and those issues which are more insignificant, we must daily deny ourselves in the great war that wages in our soul. Second point of application, we must not act out of selfish ambition, and what stands as more selfish than sin? To deny yourself is to deny your flesh, and to deny the fleshly temptation to sin. To deny self is to deny sin, and our flesh absolutely hates that. And we'll fight against that and find reasons and excuses to not deny self, to think that I deserve something. And that creates a little corner in the room, the back room of our soul, where sin can grow unchecked, unconfronted. If you don't deny yourself, sin will assuredly flourish. As a principle, if you struggle with sin and temptation, the more practiced a Christian is at denying self in life, the less such a person will be given to sin. Here's what I mean. If you're used to saying, no, I don't need another slice of cake. I really want another slice of cake. I don't need another slice of cake. And turning down what you desire, if you practice that, you will have the muscles of discipline built up for when temptation comes. If you grow practiced at saying no to yourself, if you grow practiced at putting yourself down, What space is left for sin? What will sin latch onto? Pursue holiness and self-discipline. Don't be like the world who grasps at everything that tantalizes the heart. Who says, oh, I like this thing. I will eat it 18 hours a day. I will watch Netflix for 20 hours tomorrow because it feels good. No, deny self Did not the fruit in the garden look delightful to the eyes? Learn to deny yourself and learn to say no so that the church may experience the joy of unity, that you may look more like your Savior, and that sin may have no room to breed and grow, unmet and unchallenged. Third point, this text should cause us to have disdain for the praise of man. The Son of God made himself lowly. So how is it fitting then that we would pursue praise in the eyes of, other, uh, uh, the eyes of others? Sorry, Society has taught us to be proud at our accomplishments, to, uh, to look for acknowledgement for them. And we post on, on Instagram and Facebook and, and what do we hope? We hope that someone will like it, that someone will share it, that someone will recognize what I've done. What a thrill comes into the heart But is that not the thrill of self? What poison to the soul. Truly it is a terrifying thing for the soul to be elevated before other men. May we tremble when that happens. Not delight, tremble. Because it only takes a step more for the soul to become a lover of self. Prideful, self-seeking. The praise of man corrupts the heart. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Don't promote self. Don't pursue recognition or praise by others. So many are addicted in the soul to the praise of man. We, we wait for it. We yearn for it. We're, and then, and then, because we think it will give us satisfaction, when the praise of man doesn't come, we become depressed. As though all of our contentment can hinge on man's praise what ruin will come to our lives if our choices are all bent to please man and get recognition from man. May we be content for the whole realm of man to curse our name if only our Father in heaven is glorified. We have so little faith that we don't believe Jesus when he says, pray in secret, fast in secret, give in secret, do things no man may know, for then you will be rewarded in heaven. For your father sees what you do. Don't seek the praise of others. Run from it, church. It's a danger. It's a snare. And may our name be eclipsed. May our gifts be forgotten. May our works passed into history. That the glory of God be center stage. Not us. May we work and work and work in our families, in our jobs, in our church, in our ministries to honor the Lord, die, and be forgotten forever. And if we possess that attitude, how can we be discouraged? As Charles Spurgeon once said, the only happy way seems to me, if God would only let us choose, is to be known to nobody, but to just glide through this world as pilgrims and strangers to the land where our true kindred dwell, and to be known there as having been followers of the Lord. Lastly, point four, may this text encourage us to have a love for our Lord. How can the regenerate soul not just burst with praise and adoration at the humble example of our Lord? His glories are on display here in Philippians 2 for us to to see and worship him. And our hearts are so often cold, they're, they're stubborn, they're hard, that glories like this hardly move our hearts. But, church, these are the things worthy of tears, these are the things worthy of songs. Sing to the Lord with love and adoration. Praise his name. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would stir our hearts, that we would be moved to a reverent love for our Savior, that our affections may burn hot for him, that our souls would be livened when they behold his humility and exaltation. He loves you, saints. He loves you. His love was set on you before the foundation of the world. Redemption history was wrought because he loved his people. How then can we not reciprocate with love? Recognizing the many good gifts that God has given us are given to us that we would love him, that we would glorify him. For those present this morning here who are not Christians, I want to speak to you for a moment. The call here from scripture is to lay down self, is to not promote self to not work for self. Let me ask, why would you ever do that? Why would a man, let's say there's, there's no God, why would a man ever do anything for others? Even selfless acts would then just be to feel good about what we've done. But in this text is an example for you. It's the selflessness of the Holy One of Israel. He had no need to empty himself, but he did because of the great love that he had for his people. He lived in perfect obedience. He violently died on a cross, a symbol of shame. And in doing so, he took the wrath that his people deserved, dying in their place and forgiving their sins. He rose from the dead, promising a future for his people, who were still subject to the consequences of death, that for all eternity, those nearest to him may cast their crowns before his throne, worshiping him for eternity that those nearest to him would sing and bow before him, that he would receive praise. If the grounds for your entrance into his kingdom is your goodness, if you think it's your goodness or your worthiness, then is that not grounds for a bit of self-glory? Are you then not doing good deeds that you would ultimately benefit? Is that not, by definition, acting out of selfish ambition? But God so ordained a fitting means of entrance into his kingdom, selfless faith. No works, no work, nothing that points to us, nothing done out of selfish ambition, rather trust, faith, faith in his son, that he alone would be exalted, that his works would shine in glory, not ours. So I I tell you, turn from your sins this day. Turn from your selfish pursuits. They will never satisfy your longing heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Only by faith can you be declared righteous in his eyes. Only by faith can you have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, he must increase and we must decrease. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we see what you have written here. We see the gloriousness of the mystery of the incarnation. We see the humility on display in your son. We see the commands from your apostle to be unified in mind and heart. And yet, Lord, our our spirit is weak. Our will is weak. Pride is tangled up in our heart. We need you, O Lord. We need you to humble us. Please help us to see the pride that lays in our hearts. Help us to see where we fail to be humble. Lord, turn our eyes to behold the Lord Jesus, to behold him in his humility, to behold his example. Cause us, Lord, to imitate him to follow in his example, that you may be glorified in our lives. And Father, as we consider this Christmas season, as we think and dwell on the incarnation, Lord, remind us of the humility that we ought to have. Remind us of what Christ did that we may honor you with our lives. Thank you for your word, that it is clear, that it's given to us, We love you, Father. Please help us in this task. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.